If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from historian Robert Bartlett, Emeritus Professor at the University of St Andrews, and also the author of Blood Royal Dynastic Politics in Medieval Europe. Robert recently wrote the cover feature for the August issue of BBC History magazine, exploring how ruling families established and maintained power in the medieval world. Our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, caught up with him to find out more. So your new book examines a number of royal and imperial families in Europe during the medieval period. As you suggest, in this world, monarchy was the way that politics worked in most countries. Um, so not a matter of elections and democracy, but of biology and family. Um, so I suppose my first question is, what lengths did these royal families or dynasties, as you describe them, what lengths did they go to to maintain their power? So if I was trying to build a successful dynasty at this time, what were the steps I'd be taking? Well, the first thing they have to do is to ensure the continuity of the dynasty, which means having um, sons, basically, because it's a patriarchal society. They want to transmit their power from son to son. Um, and some of them are quite successful at doing that. The Capetian kings of France, for example, who came to the throne of France in 987, they passed the throne from father to son, right through to 1316, which is over 300 years later. So that's their goal, father-son transmission. Uh, and in order to do that, of course, they have to marry and have, have sons. And that's the, how I start the book, really, because I, the first half of the book is called The Life Cycle, and it's looking at the, the point you made, the biology of this politics, because it's, it's, it's a part of the uh, system of dynastic politics. The biology is very, very much more important than it is in modern politics. So things like birth, marriage, and death um, are shaping medieval politics at a very high level. Uh, so I start with the search for a bride, uh, and that seems to have preoccupied uh, medieval ruling families nonstop, uh, even to the extreme of when a baby was born, they would immediately start thinking, who is this baby going to marry? And we have cases of that, children very young, three or five, uh, being being married, because although the law of the church was that girls couldn't be married until they were 12. They were allowed to make exceptions. So that's one area. And the other thing they try and do in terms of family politics to ensure continuity is to try and contain conflict in the family. Because if they're successful uh, in getting married and having sons, if they have more than one son, there are going to be younger brothers to the heir around. And that's a potential that has to be dealt with somehow, a potential for conflict. Uh, and I discuss the different ways in which that can be dealt with. For example, in the early Middle Ages, very often uh, the kingdom could be divided between sons and you'd have new political units coming into existence solely from the family dynamics, solely from the family dynamics. Uh, and some of those were very enduring. 
Uh, that's how France and Germany came into existence, uh, for example, but just by a division between Charlemagne's grandchildren. Um, or you could try and give them a decent position in the kingdom by giving them power and lands and so on, uh, and then they might be happy with that. So these are some of the dynamics um, that are, th these are permanent features of all dynastic systems. So those are some examples. And coming back to, I think it was the first, the first point that you made about, well, obviously it's the biology that's important. And, and to start that process, it was about choosing a bride and making these matches. And sometimes it was as young as, as babies that they were, they were matching these, these um, individuals. Um, what factors did these families consider when choosing, when choosing a potential bride? Because um, sometimes it was overseas, sometimes it wasn't. What were the sort of, what were the common common themes? Um, well, I, I distinguish, um, first of all, in some parts of Europe and at some periods, uh, for example, in the early medieval kingdom of the Franks or in uh, Ireland or in early Scandinavia, um, the family pattern was very different from elsewhere in that the kings would have sex with lots of women, not necessarily their wives. They might have wives of different statuses, but they also had other relationships. And so they quite often have a lot of sons uh, and in those societies, any of those sons could claim royal rights. The, they had royal blood. Didn't really matter on the status of, their, of the marriage of their parents or the lack of marriage of their parents. That's one, one system, if you can call it a system. Uh, more commonly, uh, in, in the most of Europe and most of what I talk about, uh, people had to marry according to the law of the church. Uh, and the church specified, uh, A, that you were only meant to have one wife at a time, uh, B, if you wanted to get rid of her, you could only do so uh, according to the church's rules. Those were, those were very important things. And C, uh, for much of the Middle Ages, you had a very restricted choice of who you could marry because you weren't allowed to marry cousins. And that was, that was a, for a period, that was a very extensive rule, uh, which would cut out a very large number of people. Um, and then you had to decide, okay, am I going to marry a local aristocrat or am I going to marry a foreign princess? Am I or my son, depending on who's negotiating the marriage? Uh, and they would have different consequences. And that's actually debated in the medieval period. Um, there's a, a little bit later than the medieval period. This, this uh, was discussed actually in um, early modern Russia. And there's a dialogue between two characters, one who's arguing the Tsar should marry one of his subjects. And the other guy says, no, the Tsar should marry a foreign princess. And the first guy says, I can give you 40 reasons why he should marry one of his subjects. And the other guy says, I can give you 400 reasons why he should marry a foreign princess. Now, I don't go that far, right? But I do discuss the different reasons one and another. Because if you married into your own aristocracy, you'd immediately be allied with an aristocratic family. And kings had to rule with the support of their aristocracy. But on the other hand, you'd also be embedding yourself in all the factional fightings and rivalries of the native aristocracy, which could be very uh, destabilizing. On the other hand, you might want to choose a foreign princess. And that way you'd be creating a bond with other kingdoms because you were creating in, you create in-laws as well as a, as a wife. And in fact, one of the things that I, um, I didn't steal it, I borrowed it with his permission, a map in the book, uh, which a German scholar made, uh, showing you in diagrammatic forms through arrows and circles, which, which courts married which members of families from other courts. And it's a, very interesting, it's a very interesting pattern. And sometimes, of course, I mean, England is a good example of this choosing foreign brides uh, because between 1066 and uh, 1464, um, you know, a very long period of time, no English king married an English woman. It just wasn't the pattern. So it was the foreign bride was the norm. Um, and I discussed to some extent there the... That has cultural consequences as well, not just, not just political ones, because those foreign brides often bring with them foreign customs, foreign habits, and sometimes they're resented. Uh, and of course, they're often sent abroad when they're quite young. And I have a section on homesick queens, because these, these are teenage girls being sent away from their own world and their own family to a foreign world. 
Yeah, I was going to ask a question about these girls particularly, um, because I feel like they're a voice that I haven't heard much about before. We sort of forget that, that, you know, they were sometimes teenagers going to a new country for the first time in this strange land with strange customs and a language she might not even speak very well and to marry a man that she doesn't know. Um, Have you got some like examples that you can tell our listeners about such experiences? Um, Yes, yes. I mean, um, uh, Matilda, the daughter of Henry I of, uh, of England, was sent to, to marry the um, German king or the, the son of the German king when, when she was, uh, or the king, in fact, at that time, yeah. She was about eight or something like that. Uh, and she had to learn German. Uh, and she, you, she couldn't get married until she was older. She, she got married when she was 11. Um, and then she was queen of Germany. And he, the, in Germany, was, part, was the, the title of uh, German king went with the title of Holy Roman Emperor. So she called herself the Empress. And even after her husband died and she came back to England, that's the title she kept going, uh, the Empress. Uh, And she then later on remarried and was the mother of Henry II of England. And he was very proud to to call himself Henry Fitz Empress, Henry, the son of the Empress. So that's that's one example. Um, You get people um, having to take new names. the uh, German noblewoman um, Bertha of Salzbach was sent off to marry into the Byzantine imperial family, and she had to become Irani. That was a, 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 a Byzantine name, a standard imperial Greek name. Um, but even then, they were, they were critical of her because she didn't wear eye makeup. The Byzantines were generally thought to be a bit sort of fancy uh, in comparison with the Westerners, and it worked both ways because there's a, a Byzantine lady who married into the uh, Western aristocracy, uh, and she was criticised for eating with a fork because that was really fancy, and she was she was punished by getting a dreadful disease for for this this uh, pretension. Um, so you get the name change. You get definitely they have to learn um, new languages. And uh, an example I give in the book: uh, they Eleanor of Castile, who married Edward I of England and had been queen for for decades she made a special point of making sure that she got uh, pomegranates and oranges and olive oil from Spain that she sent someone to buy down at the uh, docks in Southampton. So she's she's still got that sort of yearning feeling for for her childhood and so on. And considering marriage was such an important aspect of consolidating power, um, you do mention in the book that there were some some kings in history who didn't actually take brides um, and you speculate on perhaps their motives. So yes, would you mind... um, telling our listeners about a few of these examples. Yes, yes, they're, they're, they're rare cases. The, the vast majority of medieval uh, male rulers ma- married. Um, there's a couple of examples where modern historians have speculated that this might be their sexual orientation. And at a distance of a thousand years, you know, it's very difficult to have any idea of whether that's true or not. Um, but William Rufus, who's king of England in the late 11th century, is an example. He never married. Um, Richard the Lionheart did marry, but he married late and never had any children. And it's been postulated that, that um, homosexuality might explain that, but that's, that seems to me very weak, that, that theory. I came across a, a reference to uh, what his uh, sexual sins were in um, a, a medieval chronicle, uh, but the trouble is the medieval chronicle was only printed in the 17th century, and we don't have a manuscript of it. And the 17th century editor decided that whatever this sin was, it couldn't possibly go into print. So the, the passage goes, and he was guilty of dot, dot, dot. And then it carries on talking about something else. And then there's, then there's a, a, a famous emperor, Basil II of Byzantium, who's a, he's a famous soldier, and he doesn't marry. He and it's very clear that he doesn't marry and doesn't intend to marry. And um, people at the time and subsequently, obviously, thought that needed explanation. And what they said was that he'd made a vow of celibacy. And, of course, in Christianity, celibacy is often seen, and virginity are often seen as as, uh, high states, virtuous states. Uh, And he'd made this vow in return for God granting him success in war. So his his great successes in fighting the enemies of the empire, like the the Bulgars, for example, uh, had come about because he'd taken this vow of, of celibacy. So people at the time thought it needed an explanation. It wasn't something that you could say, oh, well, some people get married, some people don't. Um, but the cases are really are really quite few. Um, and as you've mentioned previously in this, you know, patriarchal 
in these quite often patriarchal societies, the main aim was to produce a line of succession that went through the male line. um, And there was this focus on producing male heirs. Um, This didn't always happen. Uh, You know, it's 50-50 chance. Um, What are some examples of where not having a male heir caused major problems for a dynasty? Well, there's two situations one could envisage. Uh, One is when there's um, no children at all. Uh, and another when the um, children are female. And the, the answer to those, that question would be different depending on which situation. Um, I suppose a very famous example in English history of a childless king would be Edward the Confessor, the last king of the Wessex line. Uh, and the fact that he didn't have a, a child uh, at all or any, male, uh, any descendants um, was made the succession on his everyone knew he was going to die and after a certain time they knew or presumed he was going to die without children um and that is the situation which led to 1066 and all that right the, the norman conquest which is a, is a very fundamental change in english history uh and, and you and it's it's just it sounds like an exaggeration but the language that you and i are speaking today is very very much shaped by the fact that Edward Edward the Confessor had no children because the Norman Conquest brought French-speaking monarchy and French-speaking aristocracy and changed the nature of the English language. It brought in hundreds of French words, changed the grammar and so on. So that's a very direct consequence even to what we're doing now. The second situation where there's um, uh, daughters but no sons, I have a chapter of the book in which I discuss female sovereigns. Uh, That is not... um, the, the wives of kings or, or queen mothers as regents. This, this happened quite a lot too, of course. They, they could be powerful people. But where the, where the woman is actually a monarch, uh, an empress or a queen in her own right. Uh, and I counted in my, in my period, 500 to 1500, in um, uh, Byzantium and uh, Latin uh, Europe, I, I counted 27 cases. And I might have missed some, obviously. Um, and... I suppose my first point about that number is it's not very high, but it's not none. So there are clearly cases where female rule is is deemed plausible, acceptable. And that ties in with the theme of the book as dynastic succession and transmission of blood, because there will be people, uh, Henry I of of England is is a notable case, who if they haven't got sons, or in his case, his legitimate son has, has died, they would prefer the throne to go to their daughter, their blood, than to, say, a nephew. Yeah? And that's, in fact, what was the dispute between Stephen and Matilda. Matilda, the daughter of Henry I, and Stephen, the nephew of Henry I, and that's a division. Um, and there are definitely, as you go on in the Middle Ages, it's more common for rules of succession to be drawn up uh, and maybe sometimes even agreed by parliaments or representatives of the kingdom and very, very often, uh, female inheritance is built into those rules. So you get um, certain times and places, female rule is definitely possible and sometimes happens. And the thing that struck me, and I haven't got an explanation for it, I mean, this book uh, does raise questions that aren't answered as well, as well as answering questions. Most of the female rulers were in the Mediterranean and the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, that that region. That's where most of them were. Uh, And I don't know why. I don't know why, but it's a definite pattern. And then there are are then also just a couple of cases where female rule was actually, um, did not take place and was consciously ensured that it wouldn't take place. Um, There's two. The the most well-known one is France, the Kingdom of France. Uh, In 1316, um, after the uh, throne has passed father-son, father-son, father-son for centuries. Uh, there's a, a moment where the king of France dies. Um, his wife is pregnant. She gives birth to a, a baby boy, but he dies. Uh, and there is one daughter. So is the throne now going to go to that dead king's daughter? Well, of course, that dead king had brothers, and the brothers were very interested in it not going to that daughter. And that's what actually happened. The, the wicked uncle uh, got the throne. And in fact, at that time, that's the first time they ever mentioned the, the idea, the throne of France does not go to a woman. And, and eventually it became a, a kind of rule. Uh, and later on, they, they adopted the old laws of the Franks, the Salian or Salic laws, 
and they called it Salic law. And Salic law is now a sort of shorthand term for the throne does not go to a woman. That's why, for example, um, when Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837, she became uh, Queen of Great Britain, but she did not become Queen of Hanover in Germany because Hanover and Britain had been joined together for 100 years or more. Uh, but Hanover had Salic law and, and Britain didn't. So that's one case. And the other is the Holy Roman Empire, as it's called. Uh, and the Holy Roman Empire, despite the fact that uh, there were dynasties who managed to get the throne generation after generation, was always officially and technically uh, elective. The, 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 the king, uh, emperor, was always chosen by the great nobles in theory. And when they were able to make that happen in practice, um, they ensured that different families got it each time to make it not drift into the one, one family. And because they were always choosing and because they were a, a bunch of aristocratic men, they never chose a woman. So there's no, uh, until the uh, 18th century when the situation has changed completely, there's no ruling empress in the Holy Roman Empire. So it's quite interesting just thinking about succession laws more generally. Um, so for many years, in the UK at least, the throne or the crown is passed would pass to the oldest male child in the line of succession. Um, I think that was the case until quite recently when they actually changed when they changed the rules. But has that was that always the case? And was that the case in medieval Europe? Uh, no, uh, that's um, called primogeniture. The oldest son will inherit. Um, that was the that was the practice and the custom in most kingdoms um, of Europe, uh, certainly from about 1,000 onwards. But you have other systems, uh, and I mentioned early uh, Ireland, Ireland and Wales, for example, um, Scandinavia to some extent. Um, in those countries, the assumption will be that the king will be succeeded by a male adult relative who doesn't necessarily have to be a son. It could be a brother. It could be a cousin. And in fact, these, these kingships, Ireland is a very good case because there you had um, both uh, lots and lots of sons from these multiple relationships of the rulers and all the different lines, the different cousins and so on, all maintained their right, their claim that they had a claim to the throne. And that had two effects. First of all, it meant there was fantastically bloody competition between the members of the family, right? Really, all the time. But on the other hand, if you look at it from the dynastic point of view, those dynasties endured. The same, the same families are ruling in uh, native Ireland in the 16th century as were ruling in the 10th in, in most cases. So they, they have great dynastic continuity. In Poland, and, and this is also the case in Russia, although I don't talk um, about Russia in any detail, um, you had a system for quite a long uh, part of the Middle Ages called seniority, which is that the oldest member of the dynasty became the king, or the, well, usually the duke in their cases, or the prince. So there you have a system where it doesn't go father-son, father-son in that way. But for most, most parts of, of Europe, the, uh, and for very long periods, primogeniture was, in, was indeed the rule. And um, obviously a threat to many of these dynasties was external conflicts, um, but there were, I imagine, a lot of internal conflicts within the families themselves, so amongst the siblings and amongst the parents and children. How did, um, I suppose, could you give us some examples of how conflicts within the, within the families themselves played out that you found fascinating when researching your book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you've got, if you think of that, situation, you've got both extremes. You've got some families where they seem to sort out sibling rivalry without much tr trouble. And indeed, you have the younger brothers supporting the king. The, a classic example that I talk about is um, St. Louis, Louis IX of France. And his younger brothers back him up, they help him out. Uh, when he gets captured on crusade, they stand hostage for him. You know, so, uh, and in return, they have ra rather large lordships in France but they do provide a support for the monarchy. So that's the sort of functioning uh, model. Uh, and then you have others where brothers are, are chopping each other up all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have some examples uh, of the um, uh, Scandinavian kings who, who lock up their brothers and starve them to death, for example. You know, th th this sort of thing. It, it can get very vicious. Um, and it was very often the death of a king uh, that brought those conflicts to a head. There's a, there's a very nice um, uh, quotation from a, a Spanish chronicler, 
and he uh, he says um, the funerals of kings have often been moistened with brothers brothers blood brothers blood I mean because that's when they start fighting uh, because now they've got the, the spoils ahead of them we have some famous cases of uh, wicked uncles I mentioned uh, the the uncle who got rid of his uh, little niece when the when the French throne was up in 1316 famous example King John of England who murders his nephew um, Arthur with his own bare hands, it seems to be the case, you know? I mean, and so, so we've, we've got plenty of conflict of that kind. Um, it was, you, you had to have a balance, you know, you, you wanted, as a, as, a, as a ruler, you wanted sons, and it was safer to have more than one. Um, you know, they say uh, uh, the heir and a spare, you know, and this, this is true, because child mortality was very high. Um, I, I give the example of Edward I, and it's just one after the other. He has sons who are expected to be the heirs to the throne, and maybe they might be expected, maybe it'll be a 10-year period. I think it's a 10-year period when his son Alfonso is expected to succeed. He's the son of uh, Eleanor of Castile mentioned. And uh, so he's got a Spanish name. And then Alfonso dies. And who, is, who comes? Fortunately for Edward, he's just had another son. But, you know, it was, these things have balanced on a knife edge, and there's all sorts of strange imponderables that come from that. If Alfonso had succeeded, we'd have had Alfonso I of England, and maybe then Alfonso II and III. Maybe Alfonso would just be an ordinary name, a name that we take for granted <laughs> in, in England, you know, with all the consequences. So you've got um, that high turnover. But if you have a lot of sons, a famous example, again, in English history, is, is Edward the, the Third of, of England. Um, he had loads of children. And all those lines continued. And that, of course, is basically the, the, the cast list of the Wars of the Roses, all his, his descendants. Uh, and then you have another situation where sometimes there would be um, kings who would have both legitimate and illegitimate children. And those two branches might well come to blows. There's a the famous example is um, Alfonso XI of uh, Castile. And he has a, a wife and a legitimate son called Peter, who is, is known in history as Peter the Cruel, although that's definitely adopting one-sided view of the, the issue. Uh, and he also has a mistress, uh, a long-term mistress, with whom he has uh, loads of children, uh, including the oldest, who is called Henry, Henry of Trastamara. And the moment that Alfonso dies, the queen makes sure that the mistress is executed, and the illegitimate branch go into rebellion against Peter and eventually Henry of Trastamara, uh, like John and Arthur, actually kills Peter the Cruel uh, with his own bare hands. And that is now what the, if you look up the history books, that's called now called the House of Trastamara. That's some Game of Thrones type um, plot line. It's very Game of Thrones, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, Britain is an example that's a little bit later than the Middle Ages, but of course it's, it's, a, it's a marriage uh, in the Tudor period that brings the King of Scots down to become also King of England in 1603. So you've got both in Spain and in, and in the United Kingdom, Britain, uh, the products of dynastic uh, marriages. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So one of the things I was actually intrigued to learn from your book, and you do stress that this wasn't a common thing, was that some royal dynasties, um, I think particularly in the Roman Empire, used adoption um, as a way of consolidating power. Can you tell us about any notable cases? And um, yeah, why, why was this? Well, I, 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 mentioned, I mentioned earlier on that one of the things that I couldn't explain was the um, uh, geographical distribution of female sovereigns. Uh, adoption is another thing I can't explain. I have a section in the book about adoption. It was very common in the Roman Empire. And of course, the, the Middle Ages, you know, has a very strong tradition going back to the Roman Empire. Roman law was important and so on. It's very standard in the, in the upper class, right up to the, the, the emperors uh, in, in Rome, of, a, of adoption. In the, in the world that I look at, medieval Europe, 1500, from 500 to 1500, I find some cases of adoption, some, but they're very, very rare. And that's extremely difficult to ex explain, because if you wanted to say, okay, well, they didn't have adoption, you would explain it one way. Or you could say, well, they, they often adopted, then you'd explain it another way. But the fact that they have some cases, but they don't always do it, is, is strange to me. It's more common in the Byzantine Empire, which, of course, was a descend direct descendant of the Roman Empire than is in, in the West. Uh, and I look at the cases, and it might be partly a matter of what words are being used. You know, I mean, is the word adoption or the Latin equivalent, whatever, uh, used? And, and, and in some cases it is. But then you also have cases where the line is coming to an end. The, the king or queen or whoever it is doesn't have an heir, and yet they don't have recourse to adoption. So I, I, I survey the evidence and set it out, and maybe someone will come up with a great theory to <laughs> explain it. But it left, it left me puzzled because there are cases, right? There are cases of adoption. Um, Joanna of Naples, who rules the, the south of Italy in the 14th century, and her, uh, I think it's her great niece, Joanna II, in the early uh, 15th century, both of them adopt uh, male heirs who are not obviously their own, their own children. Um, and make them their heirs of the kingdom. And it doesn't always work out, but they, they, they do that. And the, and the documents survive. There's documents of, of adoption of these, of these people. Um, but it's rare. It's rare. Um, and you mentioned them briefly in an answer to another question, but you devote an entire chapter of your book to mistresses and concubines um, and bastards. Um, so... What has their role been, or what are some perhaps notable notable stories of a, of a mistress or um, another woman who's come in to make a dramatic change in in within a family? Yes, well, an example is I've already cited is the is um, uh, Alfonso the Eleventh and his mistress in the House of Trastamara who came to the throne. So there are cases where illegitimate sons do actually inherit the throne. Uh, the, in, in fact, close in time to that, in the same part of the world, in, in, in 14th century Portugal, the so-called House of Avis, John of Avis, is an illegitimate son of the uh, King of Portugal. But he manages to come to the throne, and all the remaining Portuguese kings from then on are, are descended from him. So you've got that. Um, and then you've got... Um, I, have a, I have a short section called Bastard Culture, which is how there is a kind of world especially, I think, in the later Middle Ages, but not exclusively, in which illegitimate children were accepted, but they were given a sort of distinctive place. And in some ways, you can understand that emotionally, because the illegitimate children are children of chosen relationships 
based on desire at least and possibly on love, whereas the official children are the children of politically arranged marriages. And you've got, you've got examples of it. Uh, uh, Henry II of England is a famous case. He had an illegitimate son called Geoffrey. And during uh, the wars of the uh, inside his family and the dynasty and uh, wars of him and against the French and so on, Geoffrey was really loyal to him. And his actual official children were not. And there's a, there's a story of him meeting Geoffrey during the middle of all this fighting and saying, you are the true son, it's the others who are the bastards. And that's, you know, he's, he's quoted as saying that. So you've got that. And um, the, the Dukes of Burgundy, who were um, uh, in the late Middle Ages, they almost created a kingdom on, on, in between France and, and, and Germany. It was a very close-run thing that they didn't. Um, they were famous for having illegitimate children. And these illegitimate children didn't try and cover it up. They actually had the title, Bastard of Burgundy. When one of them goes to university in the matriculation, he, his name is down as Bastard of Burgundy. And the top one was called the Grand Bastard of Burgundy. And they had it in the heraldry. I have, a, I have a section on heraldry because the first half of the book is called The Life Cycle, in which I trace things starting with the choosing a, a bride and finish up with the death of kings. But the second part of the book is called A Sense of Dynasty. And that's about the way that these families created a sense of uh, political tradition and political unity because families are not only biological units, are they? They're, they're social and cultural units and, and legal units in many ways. And the heraldry, when, when it became, it, heraldry started in the 12th century. By the late Middle Ages, all the great aristocratic families have their coats of arms. And they have ways of showing on their coats of arms whether they're illegitimate or not. The Ben Sinister, which is a big diagonal going across the coat. And I've actually got a picture in the book of one of these great French princes. He's, he's not a Burgundian, he's a French prince. And he is illegitimate. And it shows the coat of arms, the, the, royal, the coat of arms of, of France, with this great bend going across it. And that's on the hangings in his hall where he's having dinner. So it's not as if he's hiding the fact that he's illegitimate. That's why I call the, the section bastard culture, because it's, it's, a, it's a admitted and accepted uh, in some times and places. So it wasn't necessarily a shameful thing at all. It was actually, you know, I, I'm proud of this. I've got this displayed. I am so-and-so's son. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was like a title, you know, bar Bastard of Burgundy and and with a, displayed on your coat of arms, you know. And, and, and I wouldn't want to sort of exaggerate that because um, we actually have an account from some East European nobles from uh, Bohemia uh, who are visiting the Burgundian court and they're surprised that the illegitimate all sit down with the legitimate sons. And they said, so it's not what they do at home. So it's, it, can't, it can't be universal, but the, it's very clearly in many parts of Europe, just an accepted, an accepted fact. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, how did uh, different families cope with and pretenders to the throne? I know the answer is in different ways, but obviously pretenders to the throne are always going to be a challenge. Um, what are the examples that you, you look at in your book? Yeah, I have, I have a chapter called Pretenders and Returners, and I call them returners because many of these people are people who turn up and they say, you think King X died in battle 10 years ago. No, I escaped. I am King X. I have come back, right? And there, there, are, there are sort of quite a few cases of that. Um, and they are, of course, they're characteristic of the dynastic world because these people are turning up and they're not saying, oh, you know, I was voted for or I've got a divine commission from God. They're saying, I am this person. My blood is the blood of the dynasty. And you have these people coming back. There's, there's, a, there's a famous example in which um, um, a man who's been in, in um, Flanders, the county of Flanders in the north of France, as it was then, it's, it was part of the Kingdom of France. The Count of Flanders had gone out east. Uh, he'd been engaged in the conquest of Constantinople. He'd become emperor of Constantinople. Uh, and everyone said he was then killed in battle. So about getting on for 20 years later, Someone turns up in Flanders and people start saying, oh, it's Baldwin, this count who was supposed to have been killed, and he's back. And of course, this is uh, a claim, isn't it? It's a claim that he's the real count. Uh, the county is being ruled by Baldwin's daughter at the time. So she has to make up her mind whether to recognize her dad or not. And this immediately, two things kind of come together here. One is the politics. 
because there are quite a few people in the nobility in Flanders who were opposed to the Countess. And of course, this person, whether or not it's the real Baldwin or the false Baldwin, right, he can be a tool of opposition. So they gravitate towards him. So you've got this oppositional politics. And then also it raises all sorts of interesting questions about identity. How do people think about identity? How do you tell whether it's him? And there's all sorts of little, in these stories, all sorts of things crop up. You know, some, sometimes it's a scar, or, you know, or something like that. He had that scar. Sometimes it's what they know and what they don't know. Um, in the case of Baldwin, he was obviously not briefed very well because he goes to meet the uh, King of France and he can't tell him when he last met him and when he was knighted and what city he was knighted in and so on. So he's not got the, the, the knowledge that he should have. So he, he should have been better briefed. And, and in fact, things go downhill from then and he's eventually hanged. But for a while, he's a serious contender. The King of England writes to him saying, oh, we're so glad you're back. Uh, would you like to join us in war against the King of France again? You know, so it, these things are taken quite seriously. Um, Richard II of, of England was uh, supposedly murdered by his usurper, Henry IV. Uh, and they went to great um, pains to make sure that people thought he was dead. They brought his body to London and they let it be displayed with the face shown so that everyone could see he was dead. But that didn't quite do it because there were still people who said, no, no, uh, Richard II escaped uh, and he's in Scotland or somewhere, right? So you, you've got this tool of opposition. It might be the opposition inside the country. It might be the foreign opposition. And then you've got this question of trying to establish who these people are. And it can be done in all sorts of ways. There's a case of a uh, Byzantine pretender. He's, he, he claims to be the Byzantine emperor who's been recently deposed. And the enemies of Byzantium, the Normans of Sicily, pick him up, get hold of him, and use him as a figurehead when they do an invasion. And he marches around the city that's being besieged. And um, the people looking out there say, that's not the emperor. He was one of the guys who used to serve at table. You know, so <laughs> it hasn't worked out very well. Um, so you've got this, this very interesting case of, of identity issue. And then a point I make, of course, is that um, these pretenders and returners, the ones that we can study, are all failed pretenders. They're all the ones who didn't get through in the end. Because if you'd have been successful, you'd have just been, history would just say that was the king and he came back again. My favourite, actually, I, I, I must tell you, is when the, um, the king of Poland was meant to have been killed in, in battle at uh, the Battle of Varna in 1444, I think it was. And many years later, there were a group of Polish uh, nobles on pilgrimage in Spain. And they were said, someone said to them, the, the, there's a hermit in this neighbourhood. He's actually the king of Poland. And he wasn't killed in that battle. He escaped and he decided he'd become a hermit and come to Spain. And the, the, some of the Poles say, really? And one of them who knew the king very well said, yes. And if you want to be sure, um, see if you can find the, a, a way to get the hermit to take his socks off. Because the king of Poland had six toes on his foot. <laughs> and by, by devious devices, they managed to get him to take his socks off. And he has indeed got six toes on his foot. So that is the king of Poland who has become a hermit in Spain. That is amazing. That's like a, an old equivalent. You know, people today are like, oh, Elvis is alive and he lives in Hawaii. And <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yes, it's very much Elvis is alive. Yes. <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, quite a general question for you now, but having looked at such a vast number of different families across Europe, um, why did why did some survive and thrive and others fail? So what made the ones that survived successful? Can you pinpoint what the ingredients were to be a thriving dynasty? I think the first thing, and it comes up again and again in the book, is biological luck. I think that's the crucial thing. And, and all sorts of, I have many, many examples of things that could have happened and that didn't. Um, and that's, that goes right through the book. So are you going to have a son? Is, you know, is your wife fertile? You don't know whether your wife is fertile when you marry her. Uh, they made efforts to find out. They sort of inspected them naked sometimes and so on. Um, is she going to bear just girls? You know, you don't know that. Even when there's a pregnancy, you don't know whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. Um, there's, a, there's a poem uh, I cite in the book when the, the king of France in the um, 
uh, 12th century, Louis the Seventh. He's been trying to have a son for years and years and years, and he's on his third wife, and she's pregnant. And of course, they don't know what the sex of the child is going to be until it's born. And there's this uh, Parisian student, he writes a poem, and he says, the kingdom prays, the city prays that it be a boy, right? So that's, I said, I said it was patriarchal society. So the first thing is biological luck. The second is if there's a system for containing conflict in the, in the, in the family, if there are rules that are generally accepted, uh, is your brother actually going to accept that you are going to become king and he's not? Is that acceptable? Can you make things nice enough for him so that he won't quarrel? Um, cousins, do the cousins say, oh, well, we're no longer in the, in, the look, in the running here? Or are you in a system where cousins think, I've got a chance, I've got a chance, in which case you have this uh, segmentary conflict between the different branches of the family, and if you can control that... And the third thing, of course, is that we've been talking so far about conflict and cooperation within the family. All these dynasties are existing in a world of competing other dynasties. And if you've got really powerful, dangerous neighbours, you can have sons and you can have ways of controlling family conflict. But still, nevertheless, you might be gobbled up by someone bigger and fiercer than you. That's always happening, of course. Yeah, no, of course, that makes sense. You can have the most perfect dynasty in the world, but you can't control external factors. Um, so my final question to you is about your article for the August issue of BBC History magazine, um, which is currently on sale. So in the article, you write that dynastic politics, so the dramas and arrangements of these royal families that we've talked about, has left a deep mark on Europe that can still be felt today. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? I think the clearest mark that's left um, is the existence of certain states. Um, France and Germany, for example, didn't exist in the early Middle Ages. Uh, they came into existence um, gradually uh, when a division of power was made between Charlemagne's grandsons in the ninth century. Uh, there was no difference between those two halves. Uh, it's true that there were more German speakers in the eastern half and, and more Romance speakers, later French speakers in the, in the western half, but that wasn't particularly significant and it wasn't uh, absolute anyway. Uh, and those two countries came into existence because of a family arrangement in the ninth century. That's why France and Germany exist. Um, Portugal, similarly, um, the very first um, uh, female monarch in Western Europe, as distinct from Byzantium, was Uraka, Queen of Castile and Leon, uh, and she had an illegitimate sister called Teresa, and Teresa was ambitious, and Teresa wanted to be queen of something as well. Uh, her husband had been the Count of Porto, or Porto, and so she eventually got herself called queen, and what was she going to be queen of? Uh, she was going to be queen of Portugal. So Portugal comes into existence as a separate country in the 12th century because the uh, illegitimate sister is jealous of the legitimate sister for being a queen and wants to be a queen too. So these things have left a very permanent mark on um, the European uh, state system. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the the examples are mainly post-medieval or, or very late medieval, but then you've got those countries that come into existence through the fusion, dynastic fusion. Uh, Spain is the most well-known example where the marriage of... Um, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, produces a new country. And in fact, it took a very long time for that country to be fused together. And of course, it may be, you know, there are signs of it coming apart again. But for a very long time, uh, the, the descendants of Ferdinand and Isabella weren't called uh, kings of Spain. Uh, they were called kings of Castile, Aragon, etc., etc., and I, I, in fact, I think it's only in the 19th century they start being called kings of Spain. So you've got that fusion. Um, Britain is an example that's a little bit later than the Middle Ages. But of course, it's, it's, a, it's a marriage uh, in the Tudor period that brings the King of Scots down to become also King of England in 1603. So you've got both in Spain and in, and in the United Kingdom, Britain, uh, the products of dynastic uh, marriages of the medieval or immediate post-medieval period. So you've got the creation of separate countries and the fusion of countries. And so you can't actually understand the map of modern Europe unless you consider the period 
uh, which went up to the, in fact, it went up quite up to the 19th century, the period when dynastic politics, monarchical dynastic politics was the rule. And I suppose just as my final, final question, was there anything that you discovered um, during your research that was really surprising that you didn't, something really unusual that you weren't expecting? Well, I learned I learned an enormous amount. I learned an enormous amount doing the research for the book because it's it's very broad in its it, its geographical coverage and in its chronological coverage as well. The 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 the, the thing I remember being most struck by is just this one document, and this is um, a female ruler. She's she's called Petronilla. She's Queen of Aragon, um, and she is uh, married to the. Count of Barcelona. This is also one of these fusions. This is how Aragon and Barcelona come to be part of the same kingdom in the late Middle Ages. She's a 15-year-old girl. She's Queen of Aragon. And I came across a charter that she issues, a document that begins, I, Petronilla, Queen of Aragon, lying in labour at Barcelona. So she's issuing this charter while she's in labour. And then she goes on, if it is a girl that comes out of my womb, and then she makes all the arrangements for that. And then she says, and if it is a boy that comes out of my womb, she makes all the arrangements for that, because of course she doesn't know. And then she gives 2,000 gold coins to the churches of Aragon and Barcelona to pray for her, because this is her first, her first pregnancy, right? She's a 15-year-old girl, and she really wants someone to pray for her. And I'd never, ever come across uh, a document in which uh, someone is actually issuing a document while they're in labour. I thought that was, uh, that stayed in my mind and I, I, I learned about that. That's a level of multitasking that's aspirational. <laughs> it's got a happy ending. She had, she had a healthy boy and she had several more children and she carried on ruling and so on and so forth. So We love a happy ending. <laughs> and that's um, probably a nice note to end the podcast on. So I guess all that's left for me to say is thank you for joining us on the History Extra podcast. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. That was Robert Bartlett. His book, Blood Royal Dynastic Politics in Medieval Europe, is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. You can read Robert's feature on medieval dynasties in the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now, and it also includes features on the Roman Emperor Nero, the civil rights movement, myths of Victorian London, and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Wednesday when Peter Frankopan will be talking about the state of global history. Mm-hmm.